How many of you have a Christmas to-do list? Raise your hand. You have something you know that you've got to get done, whether it's buying Christmas presents, whether it's addressing those Christmas cards, maybe it's something you've got to bake or uh, whatever it is. Chances are almost every single one of us, there's something on our brains right now that we're thinking we've got to get done before, am I right, next Tuesday? Is that right? A week from Tuesday is Christmas. Here's my goal for us. In the next 30 minutes, I'm going to keep myself to that. Let's try to shut that to-do list off. I know we've got things that we've got to do. We probably got things that you're thinking about. I've got to get done as soon as the service is over. But for the next 30 minutes, can we just turn that to-do list off and can we simply focus on the birth of our Savior? Now, if we want to do that and we want to read about the birth of Jesus Christ, we have two books in the New Testament that we can turn to. There's the book of Matthew and there's the book of Luke. And so we're going to be in both of those books this morning. If you want to go ahead and open your Bible, it's pretty easy to find. Just go to the very first book of the New Testament and you'll be right there. You know, for for over 2,000 years, there's been churches all across America that have tried to portray the events of what took place on that very first Christmas morning. Now, I have to admit to you, most of them, I think, have done a fairly poorly job of of, of portraying that. There's one in particular that I watch every Christmas. I make our staff watch it. I know they get tired of seeing it. And you may have seen this one before, and I apologize if you have, but it's worth the laughter. Um, This short clip is a reason why Matt will never have a live camel involved in a Christmas pageant. So let's watch this for just a second. Can you imagine if you were sitting on that end? Oh my word, here, oh, it's really coming. There it is. There's the camel. Aren't you glad that we'll just use children maybe dressed up as camels in our performance if we have that. I watch that every year and I think, oh, thank goodness that wasn't where where I was. But it seems like we've tried to take the the Christmas story and we've turned it in different ways. And in some ways, I'm afraid we've, we've almost sanitized it. We've made it warm and cute and fuzzy and we've taken sock puppets and we've taken pageants and we've taken all these things and we've kind of missed what it was really about. Too many times that when we read the Christmas story in Matthew or in Luke, I think it's really different than a lot of the ways that we've tried to portray it or we've seen it portrayed on stages in churches all across the world. So over the course of the next two weeks, this Sunday and next Sunday, I want to take us, what I say, behind the scenes of what it really was like in Bethlehem over 2,000 years ago. So we're going to look at a few characters today, and then we're going to look at one character in particular next Sunday. But we're going to start by looking at the character of Joseph. When we start with Joseph, we have to go to Matthew to read a little bit about him. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, this is what Matthew has to say about Joseph. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now we don't know a whole lot about Joseph, do we? 
In fact, we don't have one recorded word that Joseph actually speaks. But what we do know about Joseph is that he was a good man. Joseph was a just man. So when he finds out that his fiancée at this time, that she was pregnant, he wants to do the right thing. Because he's a just man, because he wants to do the right thing, he knows that he can no longer go through with this marriage because if he does, then basically he's admitting to something that he didn't do. But because he's a kind and compassionate man, he doesn't want Mary to be humiliated and make a big scene. He wants to go about this in a peaceful and quiet way in which he can just take care of it, do the right thing, but just kind of quietly let this pass. But then we, we, I have to believe that even though Joseph was kind, he was compassionate, he was just, I still think he was a typical man. Can you imagine what that conversation must have been like? Mary, you're telling me you're pregnant by a man named the Holy Spirit. He's an invisible man. How convenient is that? Don't, I mean, can you imagine what that conversation must have been like? So it wasn't Mary that convinced him of what was happening, but it was an angel. And we read about that as you keep going in verse 20. It says, But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Here's what the angel said. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, why in the world did the angel have to tell Joseph, hey, Joseph, don't be afraid? Because he was afraid, right? Of course he was afraid. Let's not try to be overconfident in ourselves. I know sometimes we think, oh, if I were in that situation, I would have handled it differently. I don't think we would have been as confident ourselves if our world had just been completely turned upside down with this news. Everything that Joseph had planned, all of his hopes, all of his dreams, all of the, 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 the details of his life had been completely changed with this news that his fiance was pregnant. But then in verse 22, it says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Now, what's that talking about? You had to go all the way back to the prophet Isaiah, who, who lived 700 years before this event took place. So 700 years before the birth of Jesus, this is what Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So that's the prophecy that's being fulfilled that the angel is, is telling Joseph. And let's see how Joseph immediately responds in verse 24. It says, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. He knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. So once Joseph understands that this is from God, he goes through and he does the right thing and he marries her. But friends, you and I know that just because you do the right thing that you know that God's called you doesn't mean that all the consequences are gone, does it? Sometimes even when you do the right thing that you know that God has called you to do, there are difficult things that come as a result of that. I had to, to think that even though Joseph did the right thing, there was a little bit of fear in him of, well, what are other people going to think about me? Are they really going to believe this is what happened? What about all the hopes and dreams that he had for his life? My fear of now, what am I going to do? All this has changed. 
And then think about the fear that must have entered his life of when he realizes, oh my word, now I have got to raise the Savior of the world? How am I supposed to do this? So here's what I want you to do. I want you to write the name Joseph. If you got on your, um, in your worship guide, there's a sheet of paper on the back. There should be some information there, um, some blank piece of paper there. I want you to write the name Joseph. And next to it, I want you to write fear. Write the, write the word fear. The next character we come to is Mary. Now, Mary, when we see her in most Christmas pageants, or we see her, we read about her in books, or we see these movies about her, she's this calm, peaceful, quiet, almost angelic figure, right? Well, when I read the story of what took place, I see a, a young woman who's in a very difficult situation. In fact, I, I love the way that this young preschooler, how she played Mary in her preschool um, Christmas pageant. Watch this for a second. Mary wasn't having any of that, was she? She said, hey, that sheep, you better give that, that baby Jesus back to me. That's the kind of Mary that's going to take charge and is going to make sure that I'm going to protect that baby. Well, uh, it must have been a, a tremendous privilege for Mary to, to carry in her womb for nine months the Savior of the world. But don't you think it must have been difficult as well to answer all the questions, to worry about what all the people are going to say about you? Well, in Luke chapter 2, we're going to move to the book of Luke now, in case you didn't catch that. We see that while Mary is pregnant with Jesus, that she goes with Joseph and they travel to Bethlehem. We read that in verse 4 of Luke chapter 2. It says, And Joseph also went up from Galilee in the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed who was with child. Now, we know that from Nazareth to Bethlehem, it's almost exactly 70 miles. So most biblical scholars believe that it took between five and six days for them to travel. Now, here's a, a thing. We don't know if she traveled by donkey or not. So whether she was by foot or on donkey, all we know is that it took probably five to six days for them to get from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And then in verse 6 of chapter 2, they finally arrive in Bethlehem. This is what it says. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and lied, laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, we tend to just kind of breeze through those two verses, don't we? Okay, and then she had the baby, then they placed him in the manger. There, everything's fine. But I don't think that's the way it went. How many, how many moms do we have in the room? Raise your hand if you're a mother. Raise your hand, all right? Okay, moms, y'all are the experts on this. How many of you think that she was this calm, 
peaceful, angelic woman after traveling for five or six days on foot or by donkey, not, not being able to find a place to have her baby. And then she has it in a barn or in a cave, and then she sticks the baby in a feeding trough where animals are eating from. Do you think she was calm and peaceful? No. And I'm not sure where, where I'm going to kill your Christmas hymns. I'm sorry, Matt. But, you know, this, this song that we sing, Away in a Manger, the second verse, it says, But little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Where does it say this Jesus didn't cry? I think he cried he was a baby, right? And how about that song, Silent Night? In a barn filled with animals? You don't think they were making a noise? All right, sorry. You can imagine how much fun Christmas is in my household. That girl angel you have on top of the tree, what's she doing on there? Anyway, all right, that's... Back to the story. Now, I'm not sure that there is a more controversial figure for professing Christians than Mary. Now, Jesus is clearly the most controversial figure in the Bible, but for those who are Christians, I think Mary is somewhat of a a dividing line for many of us. For some, they tend to make Mary almost equal with God and Jesus. And then for some of us, probably most of us as Baptists, the pendulum swings the other way and we're so afraid of talking too much about Mary that we don't talk about her at all. Now, our Catholic friends, they tend to think of Mary as if she were were divine, that surely God would have chosen a woman who was extraordinary to be the mother of her child, right? Well, the, the... The only problem I have with this is this view of Mary, of of saying that we can pray to her, that we can elevate her to almost some of the same level of, of Jesus and God as, friends, it just doesn't fit the narrative of the Bible. If you think about the Bible and you think whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament, look at all the people whom God chose to use in his work. Shepherds, tax collectors, fishermen, adulterous women, blind men, prostitutes, God has a way all throughout his word in the Old and New Testament of using very ordinary people to accomplish extraordinary things. Why does he do this? I think he does this because he alone wants to be the one to receive the honor and the glory that he alone deserves. So my problem with elevating Mary to where you're going to glorify her or put her on this extra level is it takes the emphasis off the wonder and the miracle that God can and does use an ordinary woman to do something extraordinary through her. The focus of the nativity, the focus of the holy family is 100% on Jesus Christ alone. Now, one more thing before we leave Mary here. Just because we don't glorify her, just because we don't pray to her, doesn't mean that we shouldn't admire her. There are so many characteristics in Mary's life and her acts of obedience that should cause us to admire her. Look at how she worships God when it would have been easy to say, why me in the midst of all of this? This just ruins everything. I was going to get married. No, she worships When she questions and she says, how can this be? But then when the angel answers, she says, may it be just as the Lord has told me. She is completely obedient and she follows through with what the Lord tells her. So we should admire her, but we don't glorify her. Here's the thing about Mary. The same God that used Mary is still choosing to use ordinary people to accomplish his mission today.
Now, you and I will not carry the Savior of the world in our wounds, all right? But remember what we talked about just three weeks ago. You know what we do carry in our lives? The Holy Spirit. You and I have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, and He empowers us to accomplish every single thing that God has set forth for us to accomplish if we will live in the power of the Holy Spirit. So I want you to write down Mary's name there. So you've got Joseph's name, and next to Mary, I want you to write the word overwhelmed. I think she was overwhelmed with the events and the circumstances of her life, but I also think that she must have been overwhelmed that God would choose to use her. That God would allow her to be a part of his kingdom plan. The next set of characters I want to look at, well, it's just one character in particular, is the innkeeper. The innkeeper's always been intriguing to me. Most of the times when we read about the innkeeper or we see him um, portrayed in, in different pageants, we see the innkeeper almost as a villain, don't we? But there's really only one part of one verse where the innkeeper is mentioned. You've got to go to Luke chapter 2, verse 7, and it says, because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, when I read this, I don't see the innkeeper as being evil. Could the innkeeper have helped that the place was occupied? Could the innkeeper have said, oh, well, I I'm sorry, but we read this and we think, well, who couldn't make room for a, a pregnant woman here? But after all, the innkeeper did go and find her shelter, right? He did go and find her a place where she could have a roof over her head, whether it was a barn or whether it was a cave. We don't know a lot about the innkeeper, but what we do know is that his place was full. He didn't have room for Jesus. He was occupied. So I want you to write the, the word innkeeper. And next to innkeeper, I want you to write the word occupied. The last set of characters we're going to look at this morning are the shepherds. While the shepherds, who we all know were considered to be the, the lowest of the low on the totem pole at the time, they were watching their sheep one night, an angel appeared to them. And this is what it says in Luke chapter 2, verses 10 through 14. It says, And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. So after this host of heavenly angels, and by the way, that word host, it means an army angel. That's why I don't want you to think of these precious moments, angels playing their harps with the golden hand. No, no, no. We're talking about an army of angels. They appear before the shepherds and watch how they immediately respond. Verse 16, and they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. See, the shepherds, they didn't just go and see baby Jesus and worship him there. 
Their worship continued even after they left. They continued. They took the worship into the streets that every person they saw, every person they came in contact, they were so amazed. They were so overwhelmed with the presence of being in the presence of the Savior, of the Messiah himself, that they had to share it with other people because they were amazed. And I have to wonder, when's the last time that we were amazed at what God has done for us? When's the last time that we were in the presence of God, whether it was in worship, whether it was in private Bible study, and we fell down onto our knees and we said, I am overwhelmed with the fact that you would love me. I'm overwhelmed by the fact that you would forgive me. I'm overwhelmed by your grace that you call me child. And that amazement doesn't stop in our time of worship, but it continues that we take the message of Jesus and we can't help but share it with those that we know and love. That's the type of amazement that the shepherds had. So next to the word shepherds, I want you to write amazed. Four sets of characters. Let's go back and review the words. Now, I want you to, I want you to get wadded up in this. I'm not saying the descriptor that I gave you is the only word that can be used to describe them. I'm not even saying it's the main word. I'm just saying this is one word that could be used to describe some of the emotions that they were going through. Joseph had to have some fear. Mary, overwhelmed. The innkeeper, occupied. The shepherds, amazed. Now, I'm going to turn the page for a moment. I want to flip the script, and I want us to go and look into our own hearts. I want us to look into our own lives, and when we go behind the scenes of our lives, back to a place that maybe no one's even seen before, and we go to our soul, I want you to ask you one simple question. And that is, what do you feel when you focus on Jesus. When you focus on Jesus and what He means and what He has done for you, what is it that you feel? This will take some some reflection on your part. I've given you four potential um, descriptions of the way that those in the um, New Testament responded. Does one of them in particular, does it describe you? Maybe Jesus brings fear into your life. You're afraid of what your life may look like if you finally and completely surrender your life to Jesus. Well, what would he ask me to change? What would my life look, how would my life look differently if I didn't just like Jesus, if I didn't just think he was a good man and a good teacher, but if I surrendered my life to him and made him my Savior and my Lord? Or maybe the thought of trusting Christ as your Savior, it's overwhelming. Maybe you were raised in church, you've read the Bible, you know the demands of living a life that God calls us to live. You know the high and holy calling that He's called us to live. And to be honest, you like your lifestyle. You like everything the way that you've got it, and you are afraid, you're overwhelmed of how your life may change if you fully surrender your life to Jesus. It makes you exhausted and overwhelmed. Let's be real honest. Maybe you are uncomfortable with some of the demands that Jesus makes in Scripture. Oh, well, I won't fit in with culture. 
I won't fit in with my friends. If I commit and follow completely to the demands of Jesus, the command to follow him, well, that just makes me uncomfortable and I'm not sure that I can follow through with that. It makes you uncomfortable thinking that you've got to admit that you can't earn salvation on your own. It makes you uncomfortable to say, I've got to admit my sins, I've got to turn from my sins, and and I don't want to do that even though I know I will find a Savior who longs to forgive me and grant me access to be part of His family. Or maybe when it comes to Jesus, if you're really honest, you're occupied. You're just too busy. Your life is filled with so many other things, and I'm not even saying the things are bad. It's your family, your friends, your career, your hobbies. You have filled your life with so many other things that worship just isn't a priority in your life anymore. Sure, you pray, you read your Bible, you come to church as long as nothing else better comes along the way. God, I'll give you second place. I'll give you third, fourth, or fifth, but you're not going to get first place in my life. Maybe you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus and you would admit that. And you just don't uh, think that's something you've ever even considered. Or maybe you've always felt like you were a Christian. Well, I'm a Christian because I was raised in church. I was baptized when I was, you know, three years old or whatever it might be. My mom and dad went to church. My granddaddy was a preacher. So sure, I'm a Christian, but you've never made a personal commitment to repent of your sins and trust Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. Now, hopefully for most of us, when it comes to Jesus, we are amazed The very mention of the name of Jesus, it overwhelms us. We're amazed with the fact that He would choose to love us in spite of our sinfulness, in spite of all the things, the ways that we've rebelled. We're amazed that He would love us. And as a result of that, we know that those who are around us, they know what's important to us. They know that we're Christians by our actions, by our words, by the way that we live our lives counterculturally. We know that we're not perfect. We don't live a perfect life. But the fact that Jesus has come into our life and has radically saved us, it changes the way that we live. It changes our priorities. It changes our focus. It changes the direction and focus of our lives. Listen to me this morning. If we're honest... And if amazement and wonder, if those aren't the words that describe you when you are thinking about how you respond to Jesus, I want you to know something. You're not alone. You're not the only one here in this room. No matter what word you use to describe you, whether it's fear, overwhelmed, or occupied, chances are there is someone else, probably multiple people in this room who would use the exact same word that you would use to describe what you feel like when you focus on Jesus. And friends, even though no one else may know the junk in your life, you're so afraid. If they knew about what I've said, what I thought, what I did in my past, there's no way that they would accept me and there's no way that God would even say that I've got a purpose and plan for your life. You've already messed it up. You've ruined it. 
I want you to know this. Not only does God know all of your mistakes, not only does God know all of your thoughts, all the things that you've done wrong, he knows it and his answer to your questions, his answer to your doubts is one word and that answer is Jesus. Jesus came at Christmas to offer us forgiveness of sin of which we have all committed and we need forgiveness from our past, from our present and from our future. On Monday or Tuesday this week, I saw this tweet by one of Billy Graham's grandsons. And I loved this quote. This is what he said. He said, all of us hide things about ourselves, things we don't want others to know or see. Because if they did, they would leave us. God knows and sees those things. And he promised that he would never leave you. Listen to this last sentence. The worst parts of you do not tempt God to give up on you. Isn't that great news? The worst parts about you that you don't want other people to see, God says, uh-uh, that doesn't tempt me to give up on you. I'm gonna redeem it. I can use it for my good. I can use it for my glory because God loves using ordinary people to do extraordinary things. So here's your homework before next Sunday. My hope and prayer as I've been putting this message together is that this would be more than just another message, another Christmas message. We put it in our Bibles, we go, and it doesn't affect how we live our lives. So I want you to answer two questions between now and next Sunday. I've already given you the first question. What do you feel when you focus on Jesus? But the second question requires a little bit more reflection. The second question I want you to answer is, what might be happening in your life to make you feel that way? What is it that's going on in my life that makes me feel whatever that first word might be? That second question, it's going to require a little bit more work. But until we can answer that second question, we'll never be able to change the first. Next Sunday, we're going to continue this short two-part series, and we're going to look at King Herod. We're going to see what is it that he missed in this Christmas story. But before we get to next Sunday, I would encourage you to read and reread the Christmas story in Matthew and in Luke to go behind the scenes and to see what was it really like. Let's get past the pageantry, past the tradition, and let's get to the true message of when God broke into earth by sending his son to redeem us from our sins. Would you pray with me? And God, we thank you so much for the gift of Jesus. That at just the right time, that you sent your son from heaven to earth to be born of a virgin so that we might experience eternal life. If we will trust in you, if we will repent of our sins, confess our sins and turn to you, we will find a loving heavenly father waiting and longing to welcome us into your family with open arms. Lord, I pray that we don't miss the message and the meaning of Christmas. That in the midst of enjoying times with family, in the midst of enjoying all of the, the food and the parties and the presents, that we would, in the quietness of our hearts, we get alone with you. And we would once again be amazed by what you have done.
that we would have a sense of wonder that you would send your son to take on eventually your wrath for sin. He would take our punishment, that he took our debt, and he bore it himself so that we might be called a child, a son, a daughter of the Most High God. Lord, I pray we don't lose that sense of wonder this Christmas. And Lord, it's my prayer that if there is someone here this morning that has never repented of their sins, they've never trusted you as their personal Lord and Savior, that today, through the power of your Holy Spirit, if you are convicting them, that they would respond and they would trust in you and that today would be the day of their salvation. You only have the power to do that, so we ask that you would do that even now. We love you. We thank you, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.